Hello. Welcome to a special edition of the Not Drinking Poison podcast. My name is Aaron Aiskoff. Today I'm joined by a musical and literary hero of mine, Damon Krukowski. Hello, Damon. Thanks for having me over. Thanks for coming. It's really, really fantastic to have you here. At the risk of uh, embarrassing you, I was hoping to give listeners uh, a brief summary of your long career. So in the late 80s up to the early 90s, Damon was the drummer for one of my favorite bands, uh, Galaxy 500. He has since led a swashbuckling musical and literary career, recording numerous albums with his wife and former Galaxy 500 bandmate Naomi Yang, as Damon and Naomi. He's also published two books of poetry and two books on the changing nature of listening and recording in a digital age, 2017's The New Analog and 2019's Ways of Hearing. In recent years, Krukevsky has emerged as one of the most passionate and articulate advocates for musicians' rights and the reform of the opaque payment systems of streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music. And Damon also writes a fantastic substack called Dada Drummer. Thank you for plugging that, yes, thank you. (laughs) And uh, what does this have to do with natural wine, you might ask? (laughs) Well, I learned recently that Damon is into wine. (laughs) Yes. Fair enough. Maybe this will become the first in a series of podcasts in which we talk to wine lovers who are figures of authority in other aesthetic fields, like indie rock, for example. How about yourself, uh, Damon? When did you get into wine? Is it wrong to say since childhood? (laughs) It sounds so weird. It's normal in France. (laughs) I know. It's normal in France. And my father's European. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, my family has connections to France. So as you can tell from my last name, my father is Polish. He was born in Łódź, Poland, just before World War II. He was a war refugee along with his parents and his baby sister at the time. But, you know, the, I don't know if this is still true, the Poles are crazy for France, mm-hmm. at least before the war. So members of my father's side of my family emigrated to France for generations. And there's a series of them who left and moved to Paris. Mm-hmm. And French is spoken, I think, among them as a... A sort of a language of culture for European... Um, the lingua franca. Yes, yeah. very much, exactly, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so there was a series of immigrants here, and then, of course, because of what happened in the war, um, all the Polish family were lost or scattered. But what family survived, survived here. Uh, well, th- there were cousins that were survived the war here in Paris mm-hmm. who had to wear the yellow star. Wow. Um, there and this were is your father's cousins. My father, y- yes. In that yeah. case, it was my grandmother's side of the family. Yeah. But and um, family survived in Martinique, so mm-hmm. another French département. Yeah. Um, and in fact, my father's family was uh, when they were escaping, was on the way to Martinique, mm-hmm. not to the USA. Really. And what happened was when they went through Japan, mm-hmm. they were rescued by a famous. Um, it's a famous story among survivor circles uh, by a, a Japanese diplomat named Sugihara, mm-hmm. who was stationed in Lithuania mm-hmm. and gave transit to a lot of Jewish families to Japan. And then they got transit visas to the U.S. to go to Martinique. So, th- but again, this is all the French connection of mm-hmm. my family. You know? okay. So my grandfather's sister had studied medicine in Paris, met a Martinican fellow student, fallen in love, and emigrated before the war to Fort-de-France mm-hmm. and opened a clinic. And so my family was on their way to Martinique. When they got to New York, finally, in like 1941, you know, two years of this travail. And New York is where you grew up. Yes. Yes. Um, When they got to New York to get the banana boat, quite literally, to Martinique, which was the only way to get there, um, the Vichy government had arrived in Mm -hmm. Martinique and the border was closed to the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so they stayed in New York. So that's why I'm in New York. So that's why you're an American. Yeah. So anyway, long way of saying that um, I grew up with a sort of a European household in the sense that, I mean, my mother's from Brooklyn, but my father would kind of drag the family to Europe every minute that he could afford it mm-hmm. in the summers. And so, and mostly we would come to France because he couldn't go to Poland. Mm-hmm. It was behind the Iron Curtain. Ah, uh, of course, yeah. So we came here mm-hmm. and uh, I was taught to drink wine. It's just a kind of matter of course mm-hmm. with the family. It wasn't, it wasn't wine as... Um, appreciation, although you appreciated all your food and drink, but it was more uh, a food. Yeah. <laughs> it was just part of it. And did you food. come to Paris at that time as a, as a child, or was it well, the yeah, other, we came, other regions of France? It was all over. Um, my father had real wanderlust, and we would go kind of visit different places every time we came that we could. And we went elsewhere, to, and we went to Morocco. I mean, again, it was but a very French sort of oriented map of where you would go. Mm-hmm. We went to Spain, but I always sort of felt it was like the way that sort of 
Gertrude Stein had gone to Spain. I don't know, it was sort of this feeling of like, it's just south of the south of France mm-hmm. kind of feeling. It wasn't yeah, quite yeah. to really immerse ourselves yeah. in uh, Hamon and, uh, you know, cider or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was more this sort of exotica scene still well, from the, the French I mean, point of view. Definitely the frontier between, between the Roussillon and Catalonia is very, mm-hmm. it feels so culturally porous. Yeah, and, oh, completely, yeah. yeah, and that's its own region. And, yeah. Which is maybe a good transition to the wine yeah. that I... Uh, oh, I interesting, I didn't know today. what yeah. you were going to bring, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I was, to be honest, I was hoping to find one of his whites at the local wine shop there, mm. but they didn't have that, so I, I settled for, for one of his reds. I like his reds, too. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a wine by a friend uh, called Tom Lube, mm. who is, uh, he's originally from South Africa, but he makes wine uh, in the Roussillon. This is a blend of three grapes, but I'm, I'm seeing conflicting information on the internet. Uh, <laughs> so I, I believe it's Grenache. Grenache Gris and Maccabeau, uh-huh. um, but then some sources say that there's a little Syrah in there. I've actually sent Tom a message, we'll see when he gets back to me, but... <laughs> that, that's, that's the uh, good thing about the internet, you can check it if you know the actual sources. Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, the, the... So what's Grenache Gris? I didn't know about that. Uh, it's, it's a great well, it's a gray variant of Grenache. So, I, did, uh, I know, didn't the, know about well, it. Gray is in the sense yeah, like uh, the, the grapes become like this very appealing sort of... Uh, Gray is not, it's not, it's not, it's sort of like a blush color, you know. Right, yeah. well, you know, like the rosé, it's like gris de gris. So this is uh, Tom Luba's Ola Rouge 2022. It's a relatively recent release. Thank you. Ooh, it's beautiful. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's definitely known for uh, the surprising uh, lightness mm, of, yeah, of his wines. This is 11.5 degrees alcohol, despite being, being from uh, a generally drought-stricken uh, right. heat wave region. It's uh, a really beautiful color. It's very pale. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for having me. This is very generous of you. So, mm, so the, it has a, a little pétillance. Is that the correct phrase or not? Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, definitely. That's a, always a feature, not a bug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. Mm, it's delicious. I've always thought that, like, if you've ever gone to, like, Barolo or Barbaresco in the mm. summertime, mm. It sucks because all you want to do is drink these, right. is, you know, is enjoy the local wines, but it's extremely hot and the local yeah. wines are like rather rich and intense and oaky. Right. And, like, right. <laughs> um, and uh, so he, I think uh, one, of the, one of the genius uh, master strokes of Tom Luba at Mataza is that he really created his own aesthetic for making the kind of reds that you actually would like to drink in this region. In this <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think of anything from that whole region as very heavy and very, mm. I mean, certainly the ones we get in the U.S. Yeah are stereotypically high alcohol, heavy. They seem purchased, they seem meant to compete with California wines mm-hmm. very specifically, uh, both at sort of price point and at impact, you know. Mentaza is with Louis Dresner, I believe. Oh yeah, yeah, so that's, yeah. A, that's a very good importer. And that's how I buy wine in the U.S. I, do other people do this? I buy by the importer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a very, very good way to do it. Yeah, um, it seems like the only, the only thing I can trust at home, really, uh, yeah. with any kind of consistency. Mm-hmm. And you're based in Boston, is that right? Right, Cambridge. Yeah, Cambridge, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, I went through Cambridge last October, and I was really amazed at the... Well, I, I was mm. doing an event at Wildchild. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Lauren Friel has uh, three places in Cambridge now, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe more. But Rebel Rebel, Wild Child, and uh, Dear Annie. Oh, right. And uh, Dear Annie was just, I mean, all three were fantastic. But, right. like, really, I was, I, I, I had, like, not believed that such establishments could exist in America because they were so small, right. so painstaking, uh, you know, chill, mm-hmm. uh, with just, like, a, an emphasis on, you know, good products, Simple service and beautiful natural wines. Like right. that, well, that well, I, I, I mean, I'm a little embarrassed to admit I don't know any of them. Well, when you get yeah. three places to check. Yeah, out. I mean, you yeah. know, we we cook for ourselves. Yeah. But part of the interesting thing about wine in America also is, it can be hard to find the most interesting wines without having access as a restaurant, as a buyer, through through that kind of network, because the retail shops don't always have access at all. Yeah, this is true in the sense that like. Yeah, for, for the kind of the creme de la creme, even for the importers, it's more interesting for them to place that in restaurants than in a retail setting often. Right. Just because restaurants are kind of, if, if something's really sought after, the restaurants can market that more. And they're, they're, yeah. Right. I used to haunt a store, a big kind of discount um, liquor store in the area called Martinetti's. They're also mm-hmm. an importer. I, I remember, remember that, Martinetti's. Yeah. <laughs> they had this big, they had this big sort of highway 
Charmless. It's like near, near the North End store. at that time, wasn't the, it? The, the original one was by the North End, and yeah. all specialists in Italian wines. This, I, is, this I, was I, out, I remember that one. This was out in Alston okay. on yeah, Soldiers yeah. Field Road by yeah. a car dealerships and yeah. just like a big box store. Mm-hmm. You know, you come in and you get a, a, a supermarket cart at the front. And people are buying like six packs and whatever. But occasionally they had these huge closeouts, and what it was was restaurants that had folded, mm-hmm. dumping their stock. And I would find wines there that I never saw anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, these really interesting wines I'd read about in the Kermit Lynch newsletter, and suddenly there they'd be, and they would always be on deep discount because this mm-hmm. had been literally like just liquidating the stock. Yeah. I mean, it was tragic because it was all these hopes and dreams that have been smashed, you know. I got to taste so many good wines yeah. that way. Um, but they, they they closed. They are now literally a Lexus dealer. That I imagine also, I mean, in that, you know, you've been a touring musician since the end of the 1980s, right? Right. Um, and so the amount of wine-producing nations that you've been able to go to is probably quite... That, quite that is very true. You know, and there's, there's a tale to be told there that's a cultural tale as well about, you know, changing taste and youth culture... I, I mean, I've read that this is happening in France now. I don't know how much it's it's just hype in the in the press, but that uh, wine is selling less, and young people are drinking beer and that kind of thing. I, 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 not not to derail anything, yeah. but, but to be honest, this kind of thing is like industry hand wringing, but it's really just the industry that's wringing their hands about right, that. You know, the right. really in, industry side of things. Yeah. Whereas like small natural wine estates, right, it's they're, exploding. They're, they're, yeah, they're exactly. They're exactly. Like, yeah. So they're probably just looking well. at it's yeah. it's looking at gross numbers and you know the big yeah. picture for the for the business. And, yeah. You know, I mean, like, can we grow? to me, it's not like really a tragedy if young drinkers are drinking vodka tonics instead of terrible Horrible manufactured wine. industrial yes. wine. Yes, which there always was so much of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. here. But anyway, what's going to say is that, um, for example, when we st- first started touring Spain. Spain was closed really to American bands when we first started touring because mm-hmm. it was still the sort of just post-Franco yeah, era. Yeah. And it opened up later. And of course, they didn't have money at first, too. And then when they had this sort of big boom, they started inviting foreign bands, of course, and they were really hungry for it. So we ended up touring Spain a lot as post-Galax 500. Galax yeah. 500 never got to go to Spain because mm-hmm. of this whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, so we arrived the very first time, and I'll never forget our hope. We were very excited, Naomi and I, to go to Spain. And um, our hosts, this lovely couple, they run a, a label called Elephant. And they were like this indie rock couple with a whole community around them that they were building from scratch. And they ended up starting and running one of the huge festivals there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this was like early days. Yeah. And we're like just off the kind of plane and they're like, you must be hungry, let's go out to eat. And we sit down and they order Coca-Cola for themselves and assume we want that too. Mm-hmm. And I thought they're... They're trying to be hospitable to mm-hmm. Americans. We're like, no, that's okay. We'll have some red wine. And yeah. they're like, oh, you you like that? Because we don't like it at all. <laughs> I was like, you don't drink the red wine. Wow. I was like, no, our parents drink red wine. You know. Wow. And, yeah. and then our gr- I was like, okay. So what I learned to do on specifically in Spain because we were dealing with these very young kids who were rejecting everything that had come before because they were coming out of a fascist mm-hmm. era. And they needed to start fresh. Yeah, one can have these kind of avuncular villagey associations right. in Europe. And yeah, and they were just regions. and they yeah. were throwing out the food traditions mm. with uh, the rest of it, mm. and the music. You know, I came hungry for information about flamenco guitar, and they were like, "No, we don't listen to that." Because yeah. it was a political thing. Mm. Franco had promoted flamenco as uh, see, deep yeah. Spanish music. Wow. Yeah. And so they they had just wholesale rejected all of this, and mm. they just wanted to know about indie rock from UK and America and blah, blah, yeah. it's like I didn't come to Spain for that. <laughs> so what I learned to do, and this is this has served me very well all over the world, is I've asked I ask our hosts often how their grandparents eat mm-hmm. and drink. If we take us to a bar and they say, What do you want to have? I'm having this, what do you want? Yeah. I say, What would your grandfather have? That's a that's a great approach, definitely. Yeah, and yeah. and generally grandfathers in particular mm-hmm. drink very well. Yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> you know, they really they know how to drink. Yeah, and so I've tasted wonderful traditional things, looked on with horror by my hosts, by your hosts. <laughs> yeah. who are just like, you like that? Yeah, you know, that's like all of a sudden, yeah. you know, after church, and my grandfather's in the corner like drinking that 
horrible, fiery, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, they don't realize how, how alluring it is to us when, when you, you know, when you come from the cultural void of America. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you're born without a history and you're... Like, yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. And also, yeah. I mean, I am older than they are. And it's like, no, I do. I do eat and drink more like a grandfather than I do mm-hmm. like, like a 20-year-old kid. Yeah. So we have this wonderful connection in Spain that we developed from back in those years and, and have uh, continued to work with on and off for many, many years now. And he would write on our rider mm-hmm. ahead to other promoters. Yeah. Take them somewhere where there's an old woman in the kitchen. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. It will be cheap for you. Yeah. And they will be happier. So that's you, great. Yeah. And that's a good strategy for travel yeah, in general. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. In terms of your subjects that you tend to typically write about, you know, you've, you've dealt often with the changing circumstances of being being a musician. You know, even from 1988 to, to today, there's been massive upheaval. Is there an interesting angle there to talk about the changing role of a musician in comparison with the changing role of the wine grower. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think I think it's not, un- not unconnected in that these are about the size of the communities that are mm-hmm. sustainable and healthy and then what happens when business gets involved that sees numbers and needs to see mass numbers and yeah. you know that's what we've lived through in music mm-hmm. uh, now several cycles actually. Yeah. Because music cycles are tight. Well, we, could, we could go back even further and think mm-hmm. like at least within, you know, in Europe, monocultural specialization in right. wine growing mm-hmm. is a relatively recent phenomenon. The end of polycultural production and farming was really like at least World War Two, right? Uh, and really, in, in the yeah, as I understand it, um, in the U.S. too. I mean, World War Two was such a a break in all industrial yeah. practices. Yeah. And then it doesn't track entirely, but you know, I guess with being a musician mm-hmm. in the 20th century, mm-hmm. there was that era, I guess, inaugurated by the Beatles, when musicians didn't have to tour mm. because it was uh, you know this mechanically reproducible mm-hmm. uh, medium that mm-hmm. uh, they could make sufficient money by not touring right or yeah or we toured to promote the record yeah. I and mean, that's this that's the way we were raised in the industry was um we never expected to make money on the road because uh, we weren't the kind of band that could really mm-hmm. the all and this is still true which is the bands that can make money on the road are a certain subset of musicians. Yeah. And usually it's ones who can command a, a really big audience because your costs go up as your as your touring party goes up. So like up. the Rolling Stones, Taylor Swift, and Bruce Springsteen? For sure. <laughs> and then, you know, any band that is headlining festivals, essentially, in this, in this current moment, is making money on the road, more likely, mm-hmm. because... Well, we could talk about the whole festival thing, which is related to this. Festivals concentrate all the income into one event and funnel it to the top of the bill. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. So only the headliners are making the real cash really? at those festivals. Mm-hmm. And as you go down the line, like in the size of type, it's only about three levels down. I've heard that that you're, you're at break even. And then as you go smaller, you're losing yeah. money to be there. Hmm. So you're talking about an unsustainable... Uh, practice yeah. for all except a few mm-hmm. and that kind of concentration is generally the way live music has kind of always worked but what we had to supplement it and and why we did it also economically was to promote our records mm-hmm. so the records sold they sold more when you went out and performed and yeah. promoted yourself mm-hmm. so that the record companies when we started in the industry would underwrite our tours to bring them to to even Mm. So we would go out on the road, we would submit a budget to the record company and say, we're going to lose X amount on this tour. And they would give us that amount to bring us to zero yeah. or, you know, zero plus a per diem for each of us so that we yeah. would be making some money on the road Yeah. and take that money out of our royalties. So we were all investing in the album, mm-hmm. sales of the album. Yeah. You remove the sales of the album out of the equation. Mm-hmm. And live music is, is free-for-all. It's like, well, then how the hell are you going to make that work? Mm-hmm. And only some bands can make that work. Yeah, I mean, I imagine, I imagine it really affects the instrumentation and the, uh, the execution of records at this point. Completely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure people have noticed, well, maybe they don't notice, but first of all, there was that wave of DJs just traveling the world making a fortune mm-hmm. because DJs, have, their expenses are extremely low. Yeah. And anything that mimics that, which is you're traveling alone or in a very small touring party mm-hmm. with minimal equipment like i.e. laptop yeah. or just a hard drive yeah, yeah. or just a flash drive which yeah. is a lot of those guys can get away with yeah. um, then you're in first class drive, you know flying around the world and just yeah. raking it in but if you're if you're actually like touring with equipment and mm-hmm. people much less you know 
set dressing and lighting and you know that's really expensive yeah um you're taking a whole carnival on the road yeah it's so expensive and um it's only gotten worse uh brexit has made it worse for uk bands mm -hmm. um, we've always kind of had those problems but now even more bands in in our larger circuit have the yeah. problem so yeah, it's a mess. At the same time, the indie rock world has sort of sorted itself out, and this is probably something I would imagine you've seen in the same time period in, in food and wine, where you have these sort of major indie artists who can headline the festivals, mm -hmm. who can command an extra amount of money wherever they go, and they are doing really well, mm -hmm. kind of unreasonably well. But it's at kind of a zero-sum game mm -hmm. in that it's at the expense of all the smaller artists. Yeah, and I guess with the project of, say, natural wine, of natural wine making, if you look at where this is occurring, you find the, the greatest concentration of young natural winemakers of small estates in places where the land values aren't insane. Right. Um, places like the Beaujolais, places mm -hmm. like Anjou, mm -hmm. places like, you know, certain parts of the Languedoc, the mm -hmm. old Languedoc. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of baked into this natural wine phenomenon is this wish to believe that one can exist and live fairly well on a small mm -hmm. scale mm -hmm. in which we want to exist also for bands and for mm -hmm. musicians mm -hmm. yeah yeah i do think it's all about scale mm -hmm. and scale of your community uh, and your your audience as well and that's what has become harder to maintain in music and mm -hmm. i think in media in general because of digital media mm -hmm. and because of the concentration of uh, communication networks in you know the hands of a few corporations mm -hmm. Uh, it's much, much harder to, to maintain a sustainable model at a smaller level. Yeah. When we came into music, that was uh, way more reachable and attainable. Of course, the other was not. No one on our scene could imagine uh, that they could get any kind of pop level of success or headline festivals or, you know, retire and, and be able to buy a vineyard in it. <laughs> in any region they wanted. Yeah. It depends um, on the region. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody, nobody dreamed of such a thing. The, the old Languedoc is pretty cheap. Right. Well, that, <laughs> that's good to hear. Yeah. Although it's getting hotter. Yeah. But um, but we could all imagine that we could eke out some kind of sustainable existence at a small level. Mm. And the size of that community. This is a curious thing for me. I, I when I meet people in other fields, I always wonder. Are the sizes of these circles actually literally the same? I mean, the size of community is basically like 5,000 people. If you could reach 5,000 people mm -hmm. and know that you could sell them your record, and yeah, um, then that's maybe all you need. That's yeah. all you need. It depends on where you live and what your expectations are for right. life. You know, you right. might not be traveling via helicopter, but right, yeah. right. No, but you could you could stay in the in mm -hmm. this business, yeah. make your art, and develop a community and a following, and do mm -hmm. that at a very low. I mean. It, it was a it was a big level to reach for when you were very, when we were starting, but at a certain point it became very like within reach and you understood. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, like the need to be able to reach like three, then five, then maybe ten thousand. If you could reach ten thousand people, it was really golden. I mean, hey, if I had ten thousand paid subscribers, right? To exactly. This, this exactly. Year's Substack, yeah, I'd be yeah. golden. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. So in a way, it's those same sorts of 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 uh, reaching but then you switch to digital if you, you get to something like streaming you just give everyone a graphic example i mean galaxy 100 we get about three quarters of a million streams a month mm -hmm. which earns us less than minimum wage yeah and it's not like you guys were a huge band either it's no. three, three members to pay right yeah. right <laughs> so so you know Three quarters of a million streams a month yeah. is not anywhere exactly. near yeah. enough. Yeah. And, and when that is, I've that complained, is so much attention for zero, zero profit. For nothing. Well, yeah. probably for us. Of course, Spotify yeah. is another yeah, question. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, when I complain to Spotify about that, and they're like, "Well, those just aren't big enough numbers," and it's like, yeah, like you know, yeah, I mean, that is screwed up. But surely there, there's, there must be some way of doing the math for this in terms of like you got a population of what six or seven billion on earth right mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. and there's 24 hours in the day mm -hmm. you know like there's, yeah. there must be some way of doing the calculation or like even if everyone was listening to music 24 hours a day there wouldn't be enough to pay all these oh, bands yeah, no. on it's, this model it's definitely true because yeah. it's it's a finance it's a finance model it's not yeah. a model for actual consumption yeah which I, again I, I assume must relate to food and wine in that these are actually consumable <laughs> products mm. you can't just 
buy and sell wine, but of course there are finance people who do do that. Do that. Well, you mean if, if you want to see the impact of financial speculation on wine, you exactly. look at Bordeaux. Exactly. You know, like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like like half the chateaus are owned by foreign, mm-hmm. <laughs> by, you know, by foreign companies and insurance groups and banking right. groups and like right. Provence is like that too these days. Yeah. And uh, and it's not it's not a great thing. It's the elimination of the peasant communities that were right. that preexisted all this. Right. Uh, and it's. It doesn't yield good wine. No, you know, no, and when it you don't have an owner-operator thing right. with a winery. You don't have the feeling. It's, no, yeah. and it certainly eliminates the idea that you're going to go to a bistro when you're in Bordeaux and mm. sit down and be poured a house carafe of wine and think it's fantastic. I mean, which mm. you know, and that certainly from touring around the world, I did yeah. experience. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, one of the I, one of the best just wines we were poured on tour was in Strasbourg. And it was just like the table of white wine because bands bands like yeah. us are not fed very well. Yeah. We might be fed very sincerely by yeah. people, but we're not fed with do you, money. Do you remember the name of the restaurant in Strasbourg? Oh my God, we went to a Chinese restaurant and had an amazing <laughs> white wine. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm wow. serious. It was like we could not get away from the amazing white wine in Strasbourg. Yeah. We had trouble getting good food at the time yeah. because it was only. Well, let me know before you go back because I got yeah. some good recommendations yeah. for, for Strasbourg. But, I mean, you know, we couldn't afford or, or have the time for real yeah. restaurants, but yeah. but it was just this sense of. A wine that is never going to leave this region, mm-hmm. or if it does, it also probably loses something because mm-hmm. it's not really being prepared for that kind mm-hmm. of travel and and. Well, you know. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, like this, for example, the yeah. wine we're drinking now is it goes to the four corners of the earth. It's zero added sulfites, no right. filtration, right. and it's low alcohol. Well, that's that's. Yeah. I mean, as I understand, I mean, so my wine education is is meager, yeah. but I am a follower of Kermit Lynch, so I read his book mm-hmm. and uh, and I used got his newsletter from going decades back, yeah, yeah. and you know, one of the things I always kept from that book was how he had to insist on refrigerating his country wines, mm-hmm. his provincial wines, for the journey to the U.S. Yeah. Against all advice and even... Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's common practice at this point. I mean, everybody shipping right. something across the Atlantic, it goes on uh, a reefer, as they right. say. Yeah, yeah. Right, So it is, it is refrigerated. In my experience with natural wine, and again, I'm just talking about natural mm-hmm. wine, the boat travel from France to the East Coast of the mm-hmm. USA is significantly less traumatic than the road transport from the east coast of the usa to the west coast of the oh USA. interesting yeah um, or vice versa because we get our yeah. you know for example some of, some of the best french wines that come in the u.s come in through california if a wine is well made it won't destroy the wine right but it can discombobulate the wine and make right. the wine require another three to six months of just mm-hmm. sitting somewhere to mm-hmm. con- you know like a, mm-hmm. to, to collect itself I don't know if it's if it's a true taste thing or just the mood of where I've been in various places, but definitely the sort of freshest young wines that have been best that I've tasted in my life have always been where they're made. Mm-hmm. And I certainly feel like I never get them in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, they're few and far between in terms of even who bothers to bring them in. And then it just never quite feels the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, I never buy Beaujolais Nouveau at home, of course, and, and which is like a nightmare anyway. Oh, yeah, I mean, there, there exist good examples of it, but of they're course. very few and far between. Even right. even the most of the people within the natural wine scene who make Beaujolais Nouveau, most mm-hmm. of them are filtering it, which I feel like mm-hmm. it's a shame because mm-hmm. um, they're not they're not really engaging with what used to be kind of like this sort of miniaturist's art of the Beaujolais Nouveau. Right, right. The the best in the world is is by Guy Breton, mm-hmm. the yeah. Petit Max, and yeah. he he makes an unfiltered mm-hmm. uh, Beaujolais Primeur every year that is mm-hmm. always tiny little masterpiece right yeah. yeah no i mean i find that very exciting and i felt like that was what i tasted that day in strasbourg and you know once we were in milan when they were just releasing the new wines there and and once we were in vienna mm-hmm. um, and they were serving them up in the hills you know these like moments of this kind of a very ephemeral feeling yeah of course, heightened by where I was, mm-hmm. you know, I happened to be in the place at the right mm-hmm. moment, and you have this feeling of like... And is there, in terms of seeing live music, are there such moments where it's mm. better when someone's on their home turf, or better when... Oh, God, yeah. I mean, being in the right place at the right time in music is is so much of it to me. Of course, that that is a little unpredictable, like where that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be home turf. It, it doesn't have any, to be yeah. home turf, exactly. Yeah. But for some, it is. I mean, I loved, uh, there's a Japanese singer-songwriter I love named Tomokawa Kazuki. And Tomokawa is um, a very, he's an acquired taste, okay? He's a natural wine 
of of, okay. <laughs> of singer songwriters. Yeah. Um, he also drinks to excess, but it's it's highballs. Mm. It's Jack Daniels and and soda water mm-hmm. because he bought them for us. And I, I found out how he gets so drunk on stage because <laughs> uh, they're ice cold, and you don't really realize how strong they really are. <laughs> so Tomokawa is an artist that I really admire a lot, and he plays pretty much only in Tokyo to rooms that are about. 30, seat about 30 people, mm-hmm. which is kind of normal for a certain type of musician in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. But I very much wanted to experience this. And I had to convince musician friends of ours to help us get in to see it. Mm-hmm. Because not that it was so hard to get a ticket, yeah. but just to be taken there because it was yeah. so hard for a foreigner to navigate this okay. system mm-hmm. of like the tiny little club. Yeah, imagine, yeah, And our friends said to us, oh, only women go to see Tomokawa. And I was like, well, I, I really like Tomokawa. <laughs> they were like, you know, the answer kept coming back like, women find him very handsome. I was like, yeah, okay, he is handsome. But what I, are you suggesting? Yes. <laughs> I want, will someone go with me to yeah, Tomoka? Yeah. And finally they like, they said they volunteered the tour manager to take us. I was like, none of our friends would really go. Um, so Naomi and I went, but we were singing one of his songs at the time in our set that we yeah. translated into English. Yeah. I don't know if this is too long a story for your podcast, no, but somehow, somehow it reminds me of the whole thing. And so this is how hand, it's sort of the hand-to-hand and the small community aspect of these things. So, you know, here we are kind of like from America, word gets out that there's some kind of American musicians in town who actually like Tomokawa, which is rare enough. Mm-hmm. And then there are these two Americans in the room there. And Tomokawa takes notice, like, mm-hmm. from the stage and starts talking. He's very funny. It's like I said, it was to be girls only. Right, <laughs> exactly, Yes. <laughs> Starts talking in, in Japanese and we're not understanding. And our, our host who's taken us is translating sort of into our ear. And he's translating and then there's a huge laugh in the room and our host would not translate <laughs> whatever he said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you never found out later? No, no, okay. it would tell us okay. something about us. But next thing we knew, he was, he was holding out his guitar and mm-hmm. he was asking us on stage. Great. And it was to sing him his song that we had... That he, he heard we were yeah. singing. But the thing was, he had seen Naomi in the audience. Naomi's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Tomokawa obviously was looking at Naomi. And he holds out the guitar, locked eyes with Naomi. And Naomi's like, I don't play guitar. <laughs> and Tur- points to me. And I could yeah. see the crestfallen, you know, <laughs> Tomokawa like, oh. Yeah. And he's like, well, you will sing, though, to Naomi. Yeah. And she's like, no, he sings this song. <laughs> he just looked desperate at that point. So I knew this was not, um, you know, what he was looking for, but I, I had to sing him his yeah. song on his guitar, no yeah. less. Anyway, so then he takes his break between sets, and that's when he bought us the highballs, orders us the same drink he has on stage, yeah. which turned out to be like pint glasses of Jack Daniels, crushed ice, and soda water. Excellent. Which was very thirst quenching in the heat, mm-hmm. but yeah. too thirst quenching because it really makes you <laughs> really dry. So Tomokawa himself is famous for this. As he plays, he drinks and drinks and drinks, and he gets so drunk. By midway through the second set, he could not tune his own guitar. Mm-hmm. He had a pianist with him accompanying him. He started handing the pianist the guitar to bring it back in tune because mm-hmm. it's just like going just really just straight to yeah. incoherence. End of the night, you know, we stayed for the whole thing. He packs up his guitar and we say goodnight to him and he goes literally staggering down the street in Tokyo, you know, with yeah. his guitar case in mm-hmm. hand. So I'm not sure why this led me there, but there's something about, it's like, of course that was an amazing time and place to be somewhere and to experience this that really could not be replicated anywhere else except Absolutely, in this yeah. environment. Yeah. But also it's this feeling of the community is so supportive of him, mm-hmm. but is so small. And yeah. the idea even that an American, I mean, we're musicians no less, it's not like that crazy a stretch, mm-hmm. you know, to be like, they're interested in my music, like why yeah. not? Yeah. But even that was kind of like surprising to mm-hmm. people because it's not expected to reach that far. Yeah. But he has been a professional singer-songwriter playing to rooms of 30 yeah. for 40 years, you know? This, I think, brings up a really interesting point, and again, again, what I would consider like a really valid parallel between the worlds of, say, wine and music, in the sense that, you know, like, go to like a hip-hop show or something, and it's like in a stadium, and the acoustics are just disgusting. Yeah, they're so You, know, you, you right can't now. hear a damn thing. Yeah. Like, all the lyrics are completely unintelligible. Right. I mean, like, the music has to almost be written for stadiums mm-hmm. for it to work in stadiums. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think there's an interesting parallel there with, with wine production, in the sense that when you taste a wine that is you know, 
they make 300 bottles. Right. They make 1,500 bottles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, it can only reach 1,500 tables. Right. You know? right. And it's transmissible in that handmade feeling. Mm-hmm. And in the way that, like, musicians who play, play to 30, 40 people every mm-hmm. night, mm-hmm. like, there's a different kind of intimacy to that experience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have friends who have made it to very big levels in music and no shade on them. It's an enormous achievement and takes a whole set of skills to communicate at that level. Yeah. But you sacrifice communication in certain ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's the same with, with food and wine. Yeah. That, you know, you cannot assume that, that you can convey the subtleties that you do uh, to scale at yeah, a small the, the detail you know. isn't there at no, a large scale. And it's deliberately not sonically not, and not no, gustatively. No, yeah, and, no, and it yeah. cannot be there. Yeah. It literally cannot be perceived yes. through the larger sound systems. Mm-hmm. It cannot be mic'd yeah. and reproduced. And you have devices at the soundboard to filter it out. Mm-hmm. It is literally the same word. You are filtering the sound yeah. because that uh, the, the the granular parts are going to get in the way of the larger message yeah. that will read um, at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and then I mean, now you have this whole thing with the video screen, which which is. Is is a confusion of intimacy and 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 lack of intimacy. I think. I mean. I think it's fascinating to me that people post their experiences of these enormous shows yeah, like at a concert, like <laughs> filming the screen. Yes. Yeah. And if you go, you know, if you look at yeah. like, well, what does a Taylor Swift show look like? What you see is pictures of the screen. Yeah, it looks like a giant computer screen. Right. <laughs> right. But to take Taylor Swift as an example, a yeah. master of yeah. using uh-huh. that form for intimate communication. Mm-hmm. She manages to communicate heart to heart with her audience. I mean, it's, there's more than enough well, like, evidence. Springsteen as well. Springsteen's another one, that. absolutely. Yeah. Like you feel like it's a, it's a church-like experience when you're you know in a stadium watching Springsteen, sure. even if you're like hundreds of yards back. Sure, yeah, yeah. and 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 you know, the Stones always had that aspect, and mm-hmm. and there are loads of bands that are stadium bands. That yeah, uh, the addition of the screen is is now crucial because that is how, of course, everybody experiences it. The screen gives them a, a kind of feeling of intimacy. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a kind of a false intimacy, but you can, like Taylor Swift, if you look at the gestures she makes, she makes very small gestures now, mm-hmm. but they're to the camera. Yeah. They're not to the audience. Yeah. Or they're to the audience via the camera. Yeah. And so there's this different medium that she's working with. And that's a whole other I mean, art have, form. Have you written at length about this? Because No, the, I really haven't, because, you know, it's funny, I don't... This feels like, a, you know, there's something really interesting here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not... I mean, there are great writers about pop music, and I'm not one of them, because I don't really love pop music in that way, mm-hmm. or contemporary pop. I do kind of love analog pop, pop from the era of the big recording studios. Yeah. But as soon as it became digital, I sort of lost my feeling for pop music. But you're radio. definitely an interesting thinker about the transmission of music to the audience. Yeah, that, that, and that part is very understandable to me. And what is interesting to me is that there's something about the screen that now I can see more clearly, for example, an artist like Taylor Swift. I can see her performance technique more clearly now mm-hmm. as an outside observer yeah. than I would have been able to before the screen became the intermediary. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I am older, and I mean, I saw Led Zeppelin play Madison Square Garden when I was 13 years old, mm-hmm. it was an, and it was a, a landmark musical experience for yeah. me. But the thing is that what I took away from it was a band playing on a carpet. You know, it was no, you know, they were playing set up around a carpet, so we know the size of that stage. It's mm-hmm. just a carpet. And they were playing a, a combo. I mean, they were just a live band playing with each other, and you could see them playing their instruments. Yeah. And that's what I took away from that show. Years later, I thought, I must be imagining it, because it was Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. It was Led Zeppelin, of all people, you know? Like, they invented stadium rock to some degree. Could it really have been so real? And so I went back and watched a whole lot of bootleg footage, and of course the movie The Song Remains the Same, which if you've never seen, I recommend actually for its 70s excess. But in any case, I went back and looked at bootleg material and stuff, and I was like, wow, it was it was just a band on the stage. It was just a completely recognizable thing from, you know, not so different than what we, we do ourselves, yeah. like, you know, year in, year out as a band, which is kind of amazing when you think back on it. Because even now, indie rock bands playing Madison Square Garden are putting on a kind of show that I technically don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of aspects to it that I do not understand. Yeah. There are triggers, there are backing tracks, there's click tracks, there's a whole lot of sound that you're hearing that's not coming off your instruments. And the, and the artifice of it is all very impressive in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, showmanship is one thing, yeah. 
<clears throat> but I'm talking about audio, literally audio. Yeah. Because yeah. we don't work with samples. Yeah. And we don't work with any kind of loops or tracks. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of de rigueur for almost every band at that level. You've got to be doing it's something. It's also that, for example, when you're recording Damon and Naomi, I'm saying because I know you're a big mm -hmm. proponent of analog sound as well. Mm -hmm. um, so everything is analog recordings. No, the irony is that we could never really... But this wine continues to be absolutely delicious, by the way. Speaking of which, Tom got back to me, and it is oh. indeed Grenache Noir, Grenache Gris. Oh, right. And a little Grenache Blanc with some Maccabeo. Oh, how cool. So, so it's a Grenache uh, melange. Yeah, a whole bunch of Grenache and a little dash of Maccabeo. Right, right. Yeah. It is absolutely great. <laughs> and does remind me of sort of the first natural wines I tasted. Um, it probably was in the 90s. Um, what, what were those? Well, they were always, they were often like this with a do, little, do, do a little petillon. Do you remember no, any winemakers? Gosh, I don't. Yeah. I remember where I had them. Yeah. But it was, you know, they were a little cloudier than anybody was used to. They had some petillons and they were always forever explaining to you that that was okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I was really excited by it. Well, because it's so much about the, you know, for anyone selling wine, they're dealing with these consumer expectations, which have been conditioned by the mass marketization of wine, right. by the mass commodification of right. it. I mean, there's specific reasons why, you know, you make a wine, you make a wine at scale with some kind of nasty leaves. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to get it out sooner. Sure. I mean, the, the greatest technology for getting wine out to market sooner, for rushing it to market, mm -hmm. is filtration. Right. If you filter something, you're removing all of that granularity and all of the fine micro particles in suspension, mm -hmm. which are actually preserving the wine because they're mm -hmm. against oxidation. They're very right. reductive. Right. You take all those out, you definitely need to add more sulfites. Right. So it's a it's this self-polluting process you know, in yeah, terms of the wine making. And that, that yeah. does relate to recording too, which is you use technology to solve problems that technology created or that the mm. demands of, of scale created. I feel like that's what we see in music all the time. So it's like, well, we can't do it that way. So to recording, for example, yeah. the irony of our personal recording is that it only became possible to do recording at home when digital came in because we couldn't afford the analog machines or the upkeep of them. Analog mm. machines require a lot of labor. You have to have a an expert come in and, yeah. and calibrate them. Yeah. Otherwise, you use them wrong. Mm -hmm. So when digital recording media came in, that's when we started recording ourselves at home because we didn't need a tape deck, Yeah. which was the big expense. Mm -hmm. But the whole rest of the chain is analog. So we have an analog chain of signal. And this is what people outside music don't always understand. I, I have written about this in, in my book, The New Analog. I've tried to explain it. All sounds begin as analog sounds, yeah. and not just all sounds we make in the world, like, but also all recorded sounds begin that way, because there's no such thing as a digital microphone. Mm -hmm. A microphone is an analog instrument. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple machine that just responds to fluctuations in voltage, and it's, it's not a digital thing. Mm -hmm. So the initial process of like making sound in the world, recording it through a microphone, is an analog process. It can become digital past that point. Yeah. But the other way to avoid the whole thing, and this gets to the filtration, is to have no analog sound to start with, to mm -hmm. start with digital material. So when you start with that... Like a Swiss Beats truck. Yes. All techno, except the voice. Yeah. They're yeah. always stuck. they got to find the voice. But the rest of it... Even now there's technology... Uh, oh, yes, which of I course, from yeah. Your podcast yeah, well. and AI, yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah, you certainly don't have to have that anymore. Yeah. But all of that can be done in the box, as they say in music, which means in the computer. Mm -hmm. So if you can eliminate anything where you actually need a microphone at all, you make yourself so portable, so cheap, and also you can record anywhere. That's where you get people like making tracks in the cafe with their mm -hmm. headphones on, which is an absurd idea, because you need... If you're going to have a microphone, it's like you need you need a space. You yeah, know, space, silence, ideally air conditioning as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or none. You know, yeah, I mean, during a heat wave in Paris, yeah. air conditioning would be No, nice. we have to turn ours. I mean, I'm very used to we so yeah. because we, we cut the fan to make those podcasts. But uh, when we record at home, it's often in the wintertime because we live in Boston. And we turn, <laughs> we turn the building furnace off. We yeah. go down in the middle of the night in the winter mm -hmm. and turn the furnace off, lest it kick on because those vibrations will be picked up by our microphones. Ah, yeah. So we record in the dead of night. So you have, it's a home studio? Yes. Okay, interesting. And we've been doing this since the 90s. Really? And uh, we've tolerant neighbors. and But we have to turn the furnace off. Because you know those rumbles? Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing shows up. Mm -hmm. Now, when you eliminate analog sound from your recording chain, you eliminate problems like that, which gets to the filtration thing. Mm -hmm. 
all the issues of the extra noise that comes in on yeah, the microphone. Yeah. It's just perfectly clean. It's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now what you lose, of course, is similar again, I would, I would venture to what you lose in wine, which is you lose the individuality of every sound. Mm. When you record sound in analog, yeah, the room, the room sound, is an instrument. Absolutely. Yeah. And documentarians and it's, and it's have the, to record the room. And it's the, the same room. thing in winemaking. Yeah. The room is an, is an instrument. Yeah. In that, in that like, the, the, actually, the airflow. Right. And the, the molds. The, the, the heat, heat distribution. Right. The, the, uh, all of these things, even, even just the vibrations coming from certain equipment. Oh, amazing. You know, like yeah. the, where I've been helping out for the last couple of years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just at harvest time, and then mm -hmm. they've kindly let me make a little wine there as mm -hmm. well as uh, with some friends in the old Languedoc, mm -hmm. uh, in, in Fougere. And uh, they have no electricity in their cellar. Wow. For this um, reason? to keep it but it might also be thrift involved as well but right. they also just they prefer having no vibrations mm -hmm. you know yeah they'll turn a pump on now and again but that's, yeah. it's it's got a huge extension cord going way up uh, to the yeah. house. oh this is just like a recording studio yeah. that's exactly it you have to worry about the environment mm -hmm. uh, i'm working on a third book about sound right now in really? fact i handed in the first draft of the manuscript right before we left for tour oh, congratulations thank you it's going to be called uh, why sound matters which mm -hmm. is, a, is a, there's a series yale university press house called why this matters, yeah. why that matters. There's a why food matters, in fact. I don't think there's a why. If they, wine. If they need a why, why matters. Exactly, I'll put your name in. Yeah, exactly. Why natural wine matters. I mean, it's, sort of, sort of the, yeah. it's, it's literally the subtitle of my existing book. Oh, yeah, book, it but. is. My God, it is. It's right there. I'm going to tell them. So they, they asked for, for a book in the series, and, and this is what I suggested. And the case I'm making there, it's really a book about the environment because sound is a part of the environment. Mm -hmm. If we allow it to be or acknowledge it to be, but we spend a lot of energy and certainly a lot of technology shutting it out of the environment or trying to like, purify like, like, the Like the noise reduction feature yes, on the AirPods. precisely. Is... But if you think about what it's doing, it is listening to the environment around you and negating it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if we take that to what you're telling me about the wine, it's a similar effort, which is, okay, so every, all wine is made in a place, but if we take that as a bad thing because it's going to make for variations that we can't exactly. predict and control yeah, yeah. and and uh, plan our investment strategy against and et yeah, cetera, yeah. Um, deliver on an X date, then we're gonna try and eliminate that. So we will listen to what is in that environment and mm -hmm. negate it yeah. instead of working with it. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. that is the big switch from analog to digital sound huh. um, because the microphone is always listening to the environment. So those noise reduction headphones actually have a microphone listening to what you yeah, around exactly. you. Exactly, yeah. And then they're not letting you hear that. Mm -hmm. So that's a very clever trick um, developed for cockpits where you didn't want to yeah, hear that yeah. white noise. But, but what does it do to society? You know, well, it's yeah. a disaster, I think, actually. Yeah. 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 Uh, so coming to Paris, I don't know if you have this feeling living here, but to me, Paris is in a much more healthy audio environment than American cities right now. Oh, in terms of the trash trucks passing outside but the my trash, window, well, which in terms of audible. In terms of you hearing them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what yeah. is happening in the U.S., yeah. With climate change is making it faster too. Everyone is installing central air conditioning, yeah. even where they didn't have it before. Boston, yeah. Yeah. Cambridge, Massachusetts, none of my neighbors have yeah, it before. Yeah, yeah. Now they're all installing it. No, it, it, it. It's this like electricity use arms race. It's yes. like... Yeah, and then the other thing that goes with it is you get these tightly sealed um, windows. Mm. You're not supposed to open them. Yeah, and then you have also these machines on the outside, compressors on the outside of the, of the buildings, providing the cooling and the ventilation. Mm. So there's all this white noise in the street right now. Yeah, yeah. Even in suburban neighborhoods. Yeah. Which is really shocking. And it's been going up at a rapid rate. COVID only increased it because everybody kind of like hunkered down. Yeah. Especially with air filtration and people went nuts. So there was this added idea of like, I'm not only doing this for my comfort, but I'm doing this for my family's safety yeah, or something. Yeah. So there's been a kind of mania for it. Yeah. New York is so loud now. Uh, I mean, and, I grew up and, in the city. So you really, you've, you've sensed a change in the tenor of New York on the basis of increased air conditioning. Absolutely. Wow. If you are in a high-rise building there, which is not a hard thing to be in, mm -hmm. you know, at some point in the day, you will find yourself in one. If you can find yourself one in where the window's still open, so that would be an older building, or go out on a terrace or a roof, to me, the level, just the level of white noise that has, is in the city is so much greater than it ever was before. Wow. And of course, there's traffic as well. Yeah. But I don't think it's it's just the traffic because there's always been enormous traffic, and mm. in some ways, it's being reduced by electric vehicles. Maybe we're just getting old. Well, there's that too, <laughs> and I have to be really careful in this line of work yeah. about that because yeah. it's a serious thing. And you're hearing not only does your attitude change with age, of course, we all know, 
but also your hearing changes. Yeah. It's inevitable. Oh, wow, yes. You know, yeah. I get my hearing tested every year, and there's a curve on this chart that they give you. And my hearing doctor is like, oh, you're doing great. And I'm like looking at this chart with this like sharp curve going down, right? I'm like, what do you mean great? And she's like, that's so much better than average for your age. Wow. And I'm like... That's not quite good enough. Yeah, that's crazy. It's, it's funny, you know. Like there's this in, in sort of you know within conventional wine lore, mm-hmm. everyone's always talking about how like the wine critic Robert Parker he insured his nose for you know it, it's this it's like it's utter just okay. masturbatory bullshit yeah. lore. The but version in music is golden ear. Exactly, yeah. but that's interesting. Yeah, you know, like it's a, I, I never I never thought about that. Oh, like it's inevitable. Thing, it's yeah. inevitable because yeah. as you lose high end hearing with age, there's no mm-hmm. question. Now the weird thing is, is if you next time you find yourself in a music show, if the high end sounds really screechy to you, mm-hmm. try and swivel your head and look at the age of this mixing guy at oh, the desk. Interesting. Because a lot of the old guys have lost the high end of their hearing, huh. not only from age but from their their in, job occupational. Yeah, so yeah. occupational hazard. Interesting. And of course, what do you do to compensate? You keep pushing the high end louder and louder and louder so that you still hear it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so I have been at shows especially reunion shows, I have to say, <laughs> where you go, you sort of get the whole old crew back together. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell? Symbols are not meant to be the loudest thing mm-hmm. on the stage, you know. But someone's not hearing them clearly, yeah. which is a horror. So, yeah, it's a problem. And being a cranky old guy, that, that is, you know... Yeah, of course, I mean, for someone making the arguments that you're making, you don't, mm-hmm. want, to, you don't want to come across like the cranky old guy. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And that's why I really do work hard to sort of think about the benefits that digital bring us, for example. And mm-hmm. I try and keep that really present in my mind. I don't know if you have an equivalent for, like, filtered wines and, like, um, if there's an upside, <laughs> you know, um, to me. Well, something like refrigerated um, shipping. Yeah, I mean, you know? many, many, many natural winemakers... Uh, use refrigeration of the harvest before vatting. Oh, interesting, really. Yeah. Um, like you take the whole harvest and, and it's in a cool place. Take the, you take the grapes and ideally they're in small containers right. and they're not crushing themselves right. by their own weight and you put them into a large fridge, mm. uh, a refrigeration unit. Mm-hmm. Often people rent it just for the harvest time. Right. Uh, or they or they have it built at their own place, but generally people rent something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it gives the yeasts, uh, if you start fermentation, if you start, you know, when the grapes start breaking, you start a little mm. creating a little juice mm-hmm. uh, at a lower temperature. You give the yeast a little bit of a head start over the bacteria, right? Um, and it's the it's the the bacteria that can yeah exactly it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a race, and you want yeast to be transforming sugar into alcohol oh, yeah, more yeah, than yeah. bacteria are transforming those sugars into volatile acidity. Oh yeah, that's um, I, I like this idea. And, uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, so yeah. it is a, it's a flashpoint within natural winemaking circles in that like because everyone's saying is this natural? How natural is this mm-hmm. um, to be using this much refrigeration? Mm-hmm. I think it has to be taken relatively. I mean, there's there's a lot of discourses on the subject, like a, a guy called um, Le Chat from a Domaine Chaminard mm-hmm. um, in the Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. He argues, you know, his discourse about the use of refrigeration is that it, it's a way to replicate the harvest conditions of very, very early morning, uh. which was easier to impose before her French labor law became a little sure, more fastidious. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I don't know. Potentially, yes, in the sense that if you had only one and a half hectares, you could actually just go out with your family and a couple friends mm-hmm. and get it all at the crack of dawn when you could right. barely see the grapes. Right. And then you could really do that. Right. When you got 30 hectares, if you got 10, 15 hectares, even sure. then you're gonna, you need a whole m- bunch more people and you just you actually have to work until noon. Right. So the stuff you're bringing in around noon it's is going to be hot. hot. Yeah. That's no, I, that's a brilliant argument. Yeah, I mean, it, even it, if it's, it's a rationalization, it's interesting. it is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but I, I, it points to me to something that I believe in in music too, which is that it's an artifice no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so it's totally okay and acceptable to use every tool at our disposal. Mm-hmm. It's just how you use the tools. And if they alter your goals, then what are you, know, what are you serving? Like, are you serving the tool or is the tool really still something in your control? There's some kind of externality in all these things that, you know, was related to the conditioning of the marketplace as well. Mm-hmm. If the ears of the marketplace are attuned to entirely, you know, born digital sounds, mm-hmm. then you know, then it's true. You, you hear the rooms as sort of an, an irritation when you're going, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're on some kind of playlist and it's going back and forth between some like Dusty Springfield track mm-hmm, right. uh, and, you know, and then something like modern era Springsteen tracks that right, like right, compress right. the hell or something. Right, it's, it's actually right. really irritating and jarring, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I totally um, agree. And by using these things, we wind up conditioning the marketplace to, is it a falseness? No, I think that's really accurate. It's the same thing with, with wine. When everyone is conditioned to filtered, degassed, highly sulfided wines, then they find a living wine surprising. Right. 
Right. And then you, it's irritating to sell, and nobody makes living wines anymore. Right. Yeah. So that's and a, and yeah, know, and I the think analogy that, is like one to one there. No, I think it's absolutely yeah. accurate. Um, but I would be all for them, you know, using the tools that do make sense, because we do live in a changed world, a changed world of, it's it's not a. It's not a family business necessarily, harvesting and all these sorts of things that are, have changed so radically. And it does make sense to, you know... One yeah. wants to believe that it's possible to be a small musician in a small and a yeah. small estate. Yeah, no, I mean, it is. And it, it just takes a lot of effort and creativity devoted to figuring it out. Yeah. But yeah, no, there are. And I know of many, many friends who are... I mean, we all trade information because we're all struggling also. Mm. But, you know... It's, there are as many solutions to the problem as there are musicians doing it. Yeah. I mean, but that's the other side of it is that there's no formula because I think when you do, it must be somewhere in these wines, they each have to figure out a way to make it happen, which is different again than saying like, well, here's how it works. This is how you have a vineyard and this is the business plan. And this is like, you get this equipment and this equipment and this equipment and, and this many hectares and you're done. That's what, I mean, that's what the government and the schools tell, you know, the, the viticultural schools right. tell people, but I mean, the, the advice is terrible, what they're right. saying. Right, And then the other side is like, well, good luck, you know, but you, you just what, look at the people that you admire and see how they figured it out, ask a lot of questions, and then and then make up your own way to do right. it, you know, yeah. which is not a plan, but yeah. it is it is the way that, that it works, and that's how it works in music, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. There was something else I wanted to bring up, because there, mm-hmm. there was a passage you wrote um, in an article in 2020 that you wrote for NPR. Mm. That also recalled a certain other passage for me as well. Mm-hmm. You were comparing Spotify and Bandcamp. Mm. And you wrote, Spotify is now worth an estimated $54 billion on the stock market, despite having never shown an annual profit. Mm-hmm. Bandcamp is privately owned, has been in the black since 2012, and continues to grow slowly. Mm-hmm. You might be tempted to say that one is a 21st century business and the other belongs to an earlier age, but neither could exist at any other time new paragraph, mm-hmm. which poses the question, does our 21st century business world really have to be so much like Spotify and so little like Bandcamp? Right, yeah. And it's sort of like, I would, I would put like a big highlight and emphasis on that word slowly. Mm-hmm. It, it immediately made me think of a passage from a winemaker and wine scientist and a negotiant in the Beaujolais called mm-hmm. Jules Chauvet. Mm-hmm. I translated one of his books that came out in 2019 mm-hmm. called The Aesthetics of Wine. And uh, he wrote, I mean, it was just a brief little kind of aside, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that, I think probably meant to be comedic, but he said, in our epoch where acceleration dominates speed while productivity replaces yield mm-hmm. and the container is preferred over its contents, advertising outperforms quality, itself already smothered by the religion of numbers. Mm. Actually, I think I might have I might have gotten that quote from a previous, looking at it now, I think it, he meant to say, where acceleration dominates rate. Mm rather than speed, than but, speed. Right. but in terms of, yeah, rate is in the rate that something is done. Right. Um, right. Which, rhythm would maybe be a better mm-hmm. a better uh, translation of that almost, because you say rate and that can mean so many different things. Yeah, it does. I like speed. I, can, I actually can't remember where this one, yeah. whether, because this came from a quick uh, MacBook search, right. so this was, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the actual final translation that's in the actual book. But it's interesting that, you know, that, that the question you're asking in comparing Spotify to Bandcamp is, how fast must a business grow? Right. And yeah. and is that healthy? Oh, God, yeah, that's definitely the question. I mean, the sad footnote to that is that since I wrote that, Bandcamp was purchased by Epic Games, which is a massive company that makes video games. So they're no longer... They're no longer independent. Okay. Now, however... I mean, has, has their business model changed? No, that's which good. is kind of a miracle. But yeah. the whole community that I know has sort of been holding their breath. Waiting to what's you know yeah, what's going to happen? The other shoe will drop. Yeah. yeah, but so far it hasn't. Yeah, the mystery is why this video game company wanted Bandcamp, mm-hmm. but they've generally been okay so far, and actually their staff unionized since then too. Okay. Partly in response to that, I think, in that they need they wanted protection now. They were no longer looking working for like a small company that they knew so well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the rate of growth is so crucial to all these things, and unfortunately, it's true in music too, even for bands. You know have friends in a band who told me, for example, like when their booking agent said to them they were doing well in Europe and their booking agent said they were very, very happy. And they were like, okay, great, this tour was so great, all the shows sold out, when can we do the next one? And the agent said, not until I can bring you back to a room twice the size. And they said, we don't want to play a room twice that mm-hmm. size. At which point, they stopped working. The yeah. band broke up at that point. Because the idea was, we will not bring you back to play those same rooms you just sold out because we're not 
on that trajectory of growth anymore. It's considering a band as a as a business product. Right. As in, like if you're if you're not growing and you're failing. Right. You know, right. which is I mean th this notion that if you're not growing you're failing is is quite insidious it's and, and so nefarious. It's so nefarious. It's so yeah. insidious. And so that was a little while ago, and I'm happy to say that that particular band is back together and sort of directing their own career more than they were at that moment. Mm -hmm. They got a little older okay. and sort of figured out how to do it themselves. But that's the sort of pressure that you can get when you're on kind of the rise yeah. as a young band. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the industry, the larger industry, does treat even creativity that way. Like, oh, okay, great, this is going well. That means it's getting bigger. It's not that it's communicating, it's that it's communicating to yeah. more than it did a month ago. Exactly. And if you don't stay on that trajectory, and you know, in this way, you know, like Coldplay are a very successful band. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, among <laughs> the most, of course, right, exactly. You know, like, yeah. You know, oh god, like I, the, 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 the quality of music went on a certain trajectory. Yes, yes. But it reached a lot more a people. A lot of people. Yeah, but one of the mysteries of me of modern music is how certain things achieve that scale that I just cannot see any appeal in. Ed Sheeran is the one for me right now. I just can't. I mean, I understand it's you very feel like popular. You feel listening to it. Yeah, to yeah. me, it is. It to me, it is an example of um, the opposition of quality and and scale. Yeah, it's a matter of taste to some degree. Other people would disagree, and I, you know, I would say Taylor Swift is not like that. But most people would say, well, both. No, are, I don't both feel are. dumber when I listen to a Taylor Swift. Song. No, you don't. No. Yeah, I agree. No. But it's a, to me, he's just a disaster. But he is the most streamed artist so far as I know right now. He and Drake. And the weekend, I think, of the three most streamed artists since streaming started, at least in the uh, no, globally, I think, and uh, or maybe Bad Bunny as well now. And the thing about it is that streaming has institutionalized that kind of thinking of everything has to go to the biggest possible scale yeah. and keep redoubling and redoubling mm -hmm. into every part of music, yeah. and it doesn't work for every part of music. Like, you know, it any. doesn't work for creative cycles, like it doesn't work for agricultural cycles. Right. You know, you can't right. ask more than the weather can give you that year, right, and the, the land, land can give you that year. Right, unless you start doing yeah. all the things we already made the mistake of doing, pumping the chemicals in, exactly. and doing a, you know, yeah. monoculture and all of that stuff for yield. So, to, maybe one, la one last question would be, mm -hmm. you know, for, for you, I mean, obviously, I'm not sure where, you know, where your position on Bandcamp is right now, but, mm -hmm. you know, what's the best way to support musicians that you love Oh, that is today? such a good question, thank you. I, I, I feel like that is the question that needs to be asked more, and people need to talk, I mean, audiences need to think about that. My personal answer is yes, Bandcamp is a great way to support bands because uh, if you want to get their recordings, Bandcamp, for those of who don't know, it's a digital marketplace, but you download the records. And when you pay, you pay pretty much, most of the time you're paying direct to the band. And Bandcamp takes an administrative fee that's yeah. quite reasonable. Now the problem is that most people no longer download at all. And Apple isn't helping the situation. It gets harder and harder on the computers to even manage yeah. downloaded files. And that's the push towards streaming. Mm -hmm. Apple Music now being a competitor of Spotify, they have eliminated the iTunes download shop, for yeah. example, pretty much. So people don't even know how to download if they're not within kind of the circle. Yeah. My own feeling is it's worth hanging on to downloads for the moment. Of course, physical media is helpful, but is doomed for lots of reasons. There's a shortage of, of materials. Um, I mean, people, yeah, bands wait a long time to get their vinyl pressed. It's yes, like it, yeah, yes. It's and, and ultimately, vinyl is plastic. I mean, we yeah. do have some problems in the whole supply mm -hmm. chain. Yeah. And I love physical media, and I continue to collect it and buy it, but it's not the kind of thing I think we can count on into the future. We need to find digital ways to survive. Mm -hmm. Downloading is a very good solution, mm -hmm. um, because it is still a purchase. Yeah. The problem with streaming, of course, is the same thing that the actor's strike is about right now and the screenwriters in the U.S., which is the streaming, the deals were cut by the big studios and the major labels in music to benefit them and not the people who make the work. And so for long, complicated reasons, musicians are not allowed to strike the way that the actors can, but it's the same set of issues. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing on the horizon that's going to fix that mm -hmm. for the medium of streaming. Yeah. But it may be that that whole structure falls apart as well because it's not very profitable even for the companies mm -hmm. without the growth model yeah and they're hitting a ceiling mm -hmm. that's kind of why this hollywood thing is happening as far as i understand mm -hmm. they've hit a subscriber ceiling 
And so you think that'll happen to the streaming companies too? Yes, it's yeah. happening in like music already. Like a reckoning will happen. It's already started. Yeah. And so right, where we are at cutting edge in the music industry right now is the major labels are backpedaling and trying to find alternative models to streaming, but they mm -hmm. don't really have any because they bankrupted all our other options. Mm -hmm. So downloading is kind of an isolated, at this point, antique digital yeah. practice, but still very good for bands. Okay. Um, the other thing I would say just in general is to be your own curator. Mm -hmm. of music. I think that's a big important thing for audience members to do. Do not fall asleep at the wheel with letting these corporations dictate to you your taste and your playlist. Because yeah. that's the core problem. Again, I think that must relate to wines as well. It's like, choose what you actually like or want to drink mm -hmm. and not what's being thrown at you as if there's no other choice. Yeah. So if you're, if you, if you're only going to go into a, whatever, Petit Nicolas or whatever, that's your world of choices. Yeah, and you go to a chain shop, you go to a supermarket, you know, there's, there's, not, there's no real wine on the shelf. Right. But yeah. you're gonna, if you assume that's the whole world of choice, yeah. then it's already over. Mm -hmm. So I think with music it's similar in that do not allow the companies to make that choice for you. Yeah. Do not just say... Well, I mean, it, it removes the whole, the whole no the notion of like this algorithmic playlist and this mm -hmm. kind of thing. This is based upon a complete misunderstanding of what it is to take pleasure from art. Mm -hmm. You know, like there always has to be a sense of discovery. I, there is for me. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, I, I do understand and there are other and, functions yeah. for music. And, and the discovery doesn't life. come from being fetted by a machine. That I, is not yeah. the sense of discovery. No, not to me. Yeah. Not to me. I mean, at the yeah. same time, you know, we're staying in an in a Airbnb here in Paris and there's an interior courtyard. I've been really loving all the sounds I'm hearing in the courtyard, which are mostly just human sounds. Uh, but uh, Sunday morning, someone started playing a playlist, clearly. Mm -hmm. So I was using an app to identify all the tracks, you yeah. know. And uh, first they were playing what was clearly like a dream pop playlist. It was mm -hmm. sort of like B-level. You, you have some authority on this subject. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was like, because it was like, what the hell? That's like very familiar type of guitar sound out there. Yeah. So I checked. It was sort of like the type of bands that end up on playlists like that. Yeah. Um, so that was clear. But then by the afternoon, something switched. And they were playing this 60s Italian pop singer that I didn't know. Mm. And, I, and it was a whole album. And I was like, I like, you did, know, you not, did you go knock on their door? Uh, well, well, I don't know, I'm not sure where, uh, there could have been anywhere in the uh, whole, you know, that yeah, whole yeah. courtyard, it could be any building, yeah. I don't even know which street I'm back in. But see, at. this is a sense of discovery, what uh, happened there, even if it was a playlist. Yeah, no. Yeah, but it's just one step yeah. removed from the machine. No, so I'm going to look yeah. up that Italian uh, singer now. I wrote it down. And um, so you can you can have discovery in any which way, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But yeah, to me, there is that pleasure of the discovery. It is part of it. But also, I mean, it's just, there's, there's great music all around. And for your listeners who are in Paris, I mean, Paris is a great place to be discovering music. I always have found um, wonderful music here, especially from North Africa and, and the subcontinent because of the French colonial histories and, and immigration here, you know. So to me, it's always been a wild discovery here. Well, you got to come back more often. Oh yeah, God, I mean, always, always I, here as well. I, I, I can talk to you for five hours. Yeah, you know, well, like, no, yeah. well, that's that's <laughs> that's why it's good to share a bottle of wine with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, really, thank you so much for uh, for coming and uh, and, appear, and appearing together to talk about wine and music. Yeah, oh, it's such been a pleasure. So I think fun. you know, crossing crossing media like that is really important, and I'm happy to do it anytime. Well, can we Especially can we tell you tour again? Bottle of delicious wine like this, really oh. superb. Next next time, we'll open a Magnum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you again. Cheers.